Welcome to Care Captains, the podcast where Norbert Farkas has candid conversations with visionary healthcare leaders. Explore the projects, challenges, and victories in disease prevention, diagnosis, and cure. Join us for a masterclass in healthcare innovation for well-being. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. This is another episode of Care Captains. Today, I'm delighted to have Verena Welter on the show. And Verena recently wrote a book, which is called It Takes Five to Tango, but uh, she has many, many other roles, what we will be going into today. And then I'm delighted to have you on the show, Verena. Good afternoon to you. Thank you so much, Norbert. It's a real pleasure to be here and to swap seats for a time for me. (laughs) Exactly. Easy part of being the one who can just answer and doesn't need to think about the questions. So thanks for your new format that I'm very supportive of. Thank you, Verena. And we will come back to that. You have also a podcast, Let's Talk Value. And today you are on the hot seat. So maybe it's a new setup uh, being on another side. But um, I think it's very important to understand how you ended up also running a podcast that you are a physician, you are an oncologist. Why did you become a physician, Verena? It's since I'm a child, I knew I wanted to become a doctor. I was actually eight years old. And I just recently read some scientific developmental papers saying that at age eight, the human person is pretty much done and fatic <laughs> and everything else is just fine tuning and maturing. And so I was surprised to figure out that it was age eight when I entered a hospital with my auntie, who was a nurse on the baby's ward. And she thought I would be happy to see the babies on the ward, which I was, but I was much more fascinated let alone by the lobby of a hospital. And I still remember actually the smelling and I see the people and the audio I still remember. And to this day, I'm not going to say how many years later, but a few decades, I exactly have the same feeling when I enter a hospital. So what I'm trying to say is it's not really a rational decision. It is something about connecting with our senses and connecting with people and that has been my North Star for my entire life. And I still follow that path. This is really nice that you already knew your calling at the age of eight. And uh, you have also a family story here. And then then you became an oncologist. Did you choose this uh, specialization really consciously or you got more exposed to that one during your medical practice? How was this decision? I love that question, Norbert. I have to thank you for this. I, people have not asked me that specific question. And actually, it's a really important one because I always wanted to become a surgeon. I am a doer person and people who live with me and work with me and my friends all smiling now as they listen, I think. So Working with my hands, being creative and practical and immediate in the action, that's really what resonates with me. I simply had to give up on it physically because I'm a rather small person with low blood pressure and I was actually fainting in the operating theater just because my physical stature didn't allow. And that is probably why there is still a lot of men doing surgery. It's really hard work. So... I then kind of ended up in internal medicine and just became a simple internist. And I love my profession. I love the intellectual stimulus with the whole body connections and how the heart works with the kidneys and, you know, all the interconnectivities. In my early years, I was a little bit bored with the more mass population diseases, which I actually, I think later we'll get back to this. Now, 30 years later, I'm coming back to my roots, actually, in terms of public health and and, uh, diseases of the masses. 
But early in my career, I was really drawn to the real tough conversations that really matter. And it brought me to cancer. And I immediately had a strong bond with patients diagnosed suffering and living with cancer. And I felt I could really add value to these people, particularly around anxiety management, helping them drive through the hardest, one of the hardest parts of their lives. And that also is a red threat to what I do today. And I know we talk about this later around negotiation and how do you negotiate with yourself also, like when life is tough on you and others are tough on you. So yeah, that was some of the reasons why I became an oncologist. What I always admire in physicians that you guys take very difficult decisions together with the patients and then you deal with human life. How is it on the other side as a physician? How do you deal with these tough decisions on the end of the day? How can you digest it? How can you switch off? A couple of questions there, but thanks for hinting already again to a key point of what drives me now is that two words you said together with the patients. And I now consciously realize that that's what I've always been doing. At the time, I intuitively as a young doctor and then a senior doctor in attending, that co-creation part with the patient. It's like asking what's important to you. You just got diagnosed, let's say, with stage four lung cancer. The textbook says average survival rate of maybe two years if you're lucky. All these numbers don't mean anything to anybody because A, you don't know, is it two years for the person sitting in front of you? It could be five, but it could be six months. So it's meaningless. Like number talking about numbers with people is meaningless. What really matters is, hey, what's your plan in life? What do you want to do? What's your project? And then we have a conversation. What is the armamentary of therapies we could do, we should do, that you want to do? And it's that transparency in the conversation. And in my experience, it's the number one remedy to actually alleviate anxiety and to be very specific and focused to the person and give the person the feeling of empowerment. And they can take the decision. You as a doctor are there with the rest of the care team to support them in that journey. And the other part of your question, the switching off, that's a tough part. That's what somebody needs to learn. I mean, you need to have activities, particularly mental and physical activities that allow you to switch off. So obviously, the physical workout, be it sport or what's a little bit more popular these days, yoga, but also what helps is meditation. So anything that actively forces your mind to switch off and be somewhere else is key as one element. And the second element, in my experience, I was lucky early on part of my oncology training in Switzerland, and we started a communication skills in oncology training, post-grad training for oncologists to learn how to communicate not only with patients, but also with ourselves. So basically what that was, was a supervision by a psycho-oncologist, by a psychiatrist for six months. And so to have that supervision, to talk to somebody else about difficult situations is, I think, essential. Because we're not superhumans, we also have feelings. But of course, you need to be able to pack it aside so that you can go back to the next patient and help the next patient. So if we schlep like our bad feelings from one person to the other, that is not helping anybody. You worked uh, many, many years as a physician and then you transitioned to industry. Why did you move over to the pharmaceutical industry, Marina? The only thing in my career that I deliberately chose was to become a doctor. Everything else was an accident in life. So (laughs) 
never had any plans to go to the pharmaceutical industry and then things happened. So the only thing that I had decided that I wanted to switch from the hospital I had been for almost close to 10 years at that point, I wanted to do something else. And then I was just wandering around open-minded. Oh, maybe I open up my own private practice. Maybe I swap countries. So I was basically going on my personal roadshow to see five or six different friends, colleagues, interviews. And then there was this friend coming to our place for a Sunday barbecue and said, oh, I'm taking this new job with Celgene in Switzerland. We have really fancy offices, brand new glass and modern and spacious, and we provide, you know, company cars and benefits. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to go and see my friend and have a coffee. Of course, he had a plan. He had a plan to hire me. I was so naive and innocent. I had no idea. I just went there to have coffee with my friend. And I walked out with a job offer. And 10 days later, I decided I'm going to do it. And I thought I'll do it for a year to learn clinical research from the pharmaceutical side. So how clinical trials are done. I knew it from the academic side because I was an investigator in the hospital. But I was really curious how the whole drug development works in the commercialization and I thought, I'll do it for a year. And then that helps me figure out what I want to do next. And that was ended up to be 12 years. 12 years, exactly. And um, I think you were also serving in uh, several locations in Europe. You even went to Korea. And I think you all were also stationed in the US. How was this international journey within Celgene? Amazing. I think this is one of the great opportunities working for a multinational company as opposed to like one hospital. I mean, of course, physicians do move around also from countries to countries from different centers, but it's it's a bit harder. So I think that I found was a phenomenal gift and opportunity and still is today for people that work in multinational companies to have that opportunity and obviously learn different cultures, different ways of working and different perspectives. And then more from a professional healthcare perspective for me to learn different markets. So obviously knowing or having grown and been trained in the Western European environment, then to see emerging trending markets in the Far East was very impressive, Korea and Taiwan. And then afterwards going to the U.S., really immerse myself in the U.S. healthcare system that is spoken and written about a lot. But to kind of be there and experience it yourself was incredibly enriching and has helped me to take the step that I'm doing now in bringing it all together in my current own enterprise. Do you see major differences, how business is perceived, how business is run, how people think? What cultural differences, if at all, did you live through in these settings? Yeah, so there's the quote-unquote general societal cultural aspect. And then obviously there's the very specific different healthcare systems aspect so for the first one, the cultural, there's, I think, a zillion responses possible and they're highly subjective flavored and how everybody differently experiences different cultures. But the one thing that is probably unanimous and that can be said is that the Far Eastern culture like China, Japan, Korea is based on Confucianistic principles versus certainly the European and other Occidental Western countries is based on the Greek Aristoteles principles. And in simplicity, one is very individual ego-focused, which is the West. And then Confucius is all about the group, the family, the team, the senior, following the senior person. 
And that is absolutely what I've experienced in the business. So business is done according to those principles. And that's very, very interesting. And it's very hard for Western and, you know, grown up, raised, educated with a more individualistic view on how things should be done. And it was incredibly informative for me, even from a leadership perspective, to have that different perspective on from a different cultural angle. From a healthcare systems perspective, the two observations, maybe one that I've more figured out now as I was preparing for the book and researching is the root causes on why healthcare systems are broken in many places, pretty similar. The solutions and how to fix it needs to be very, very country and regional um, specific because we have different political systems, we have different maturity and economy. So it's very hard to say what works in Sweden will do it in Taiwan. It may work, but it may not work. But the reason why it's broken is very similar. You always stayed on the on the medical side, medical affairs. You were medical director. How did this role link to your previous practice as a physician? Maybe how could you utilize your previous learnings in this clinical development, commercialization, medical roles? I think the most important is customer centricity, is having been in the shoes of what is the key and core customer to a pharmaceutical company is still the physicians, although it should be much broader. It's it's not only the KOL and the prescriber and the investigator. It, there's many more stakeholders. But I think it's really that having come as a doctor from the forefront of care delivery, having worked with patients, it's bringing in that insight both from the physician's view, but also indirectly the patient view through maybe my particular way of looking at what I described earlier, how I look at doctor-patient co-creation, but also as a cancer doctor, obviously. And that has helped me do a better job. And I think it has helped my teams and the, and the company and the products I was working on. It was an incredible asset to have that life experience. Obviously, coming hand in hand, the flip side, when you do that, these and many of my colleagues have done the swap from academia to pharma. It's just to learn the whole pharmaceutical professional processes and ways of working is very hard. So it was kind of not easy to bring it in on an everyday level, but the deep insight from the forefront, from the wards, from the out sitting with the outpatient, sitting throughout patient journeys, particularly in the cancer setting, is something very valuable to make any product development, any clinical trial design basically better. I cannot agree more. And it calls for the question that you climbed the corporate ladder to vice president and later to senior vice president role. The, the further you are away from the patient, how difficult is that to keep this customer centricity since you operate with bigger teams, you have many more processes, many more layers, you are sitting in global. So how did this customer centricity and your leadership style potentially come together? Love the question, Norbert. And I don't know if I always succeeded, but it is absolutely that uh, centrifugal force that draws you into the center, in that case, into the headquarters, into the office, as you become basically an administrator. That's what we are when we, we think it's great roles when you're executive, whatnot. But at the end, you're, in, you're a manager and administrator. And as you say, very far away from where the rubber hits the road. So I don't know if I was successful, but I, was, I can say what I tried to do I had a formula for myself, and I think I kept it until the end of my pharma days. I put myself an objective of X days out there in the field. 
no matter what internal executive committee, what not project delivery, I sometimes I was lucky enough to say once a week in more busy times, maybe once a month. But I almost when I was doing setting objectives at the beginning of the year, I put up one for myself and I tracked it like with pen and paper. So I think that was good and and that helped me. And I think it was valued by the teams because actually as a senior executive, that's what you can really do best is to be with your teams and show up. They really feel and love the support. And then for us, it gives us that direct insight to be there and feel it because it's what I said earlier with the hospital lobby at age eight. Rational is important. Logic is important, but you need to feel things to really be able to drive the needle and have an impact back at the headquarter, at the decision-making table. We're all human beings. We're wired like this. So only through reading things is important. The feeling and the real experience is, I think, what makes the difference. And to have that closeness with the customer constantly. I cannot agree more. And it's a very pragmatic approach. I think it definitely does the job really well in these very senior executive roles. Speaking of which, you moved over to Novartis and you were heading up the US oncology medical part of the business. It was also a kind of like a coincidence that it happened. The conscious part of it was that to gain that deep insight of the US healthcare system. So I had been exposed to the US for the 10 years prior, but always like in one, two levels, more remote roles, like in global medical affairs responsibilities. Of course, US is always the biggest part of any global role. And then also having spent a lot of physical time in the US and with academic medical centers on the ground. But it's very different when you go deeper one level onto that first level, you know, oversight and responsibility of a, of a country and a market. So that was, I think, my really conscious drive to wanting that role. And the rest then was, yeah, it was, again, right time, <laughs> right time, right moment, right decision. After that, I think you had, again, a very bold move. Uh, you joined uh, consulting and uh, started advising various organizations, another new perspective, maybe another coincidence. How was this move from the industry rather to the consulting side? The key aspect was having been in more than 25 years employment status to move over to become an independent entrepreneur is a massive seismic swap. And maybe luckily I was not at all conscientious about that move. <laughs> maybe if I would have known, I wouldn't have done it. Uh, so th this is a huge adjustment, very different, again, around the feeling to feel how it is, you know, that you need to secure the funding, the cash flow, the customer base, a completely different experience. And you basically start at zero again. But I guess that's what I like. I need the challenge. Staying on the challenges, and let's come to your book, uh, what uh, we have already alluded to. And uh, your book, uh, I think it has a very nice title. It takes five to tango in healthcare. So why did you write this book, uh, Verena? Part of it is that unique set of experience, like 50-50 almost in my career, on the, in the public sector, in the care delivery sector, and then the other half in the private sector for profit, product development, more economically driven aspects. And then having set myself for years in negotiations, 
planning and value narratives for payers and policymakers. So that idea of the 5P, of that number five, which is basically the natural value chain, which is patients receiving care, provider providing care, pharma to a large extent developing the innovation and the care, and then payer paying for it and policy putting the ethical and regulatory framework. And I figured there's so much silo thinking and silo working and so little looking across the fence and co-create things together along that value chain. And I felt I need to share and, you know, tell some of the stories. It was actually not my proactive decision to write a book. It was more people telling me, it's like, Reina, you should share that experience. You've been in the clinics, you've been in pharma, you've done commercial roles, you've been sitting with pairs, and there's and you have all these positive experiences on what came out of it. And I thought that's actually true. And there's so much complaining and shaming and singling out villains on why bad pharma and drug pricing and all this ego-driven behavior. And I looked at myself and like, well, I have all these personal experiences of very productive co-creation with all these stakeholders. And it is true. We don't tell those stories necessarily. And that was the real motivation. I like the fact that you also bring uh, many case studies, many tangible examples in the book, backing up these various nice recommendations. How did you select these uh, cases? I wanted to bring examples from each chapter of my life. So there's at least two of my former patients. Then I had a very deep desire to tell parts of the story of Celgene that many of my co-fellows, ex-Celgene people, have shared and are shared. So I really wanted to put a little bit of a legacy in there. And and Philippe van Holle wrote the foreword, the former European president. And because they're the case studies for the co-creation and how the different piece can work together. And then bringing in somebody from my current life, the wonderful Hannah Boetius, whom I have the pleasure to work with in my day life right now. She has a center role as a patient and, and a professional in healthcare as a healthcare leader. So it's really kind of that 360 view of little example snippets of each step of my career I was able to have with many wonderful people. I think it was also giving the tribute. And there's never enough pages in a book to tell and name all the individuals that make you successful, basically, and who you are. But at least a, a few, I wanted to provide a platform and a, and, and a word of gratitude. And it's really personal. I see that it links to your story as we talk uh, now about your various career steps. What really caught my eye was the title. How did you pick this very illustrative title, linking value-based healthcare and 5P to Tango? So that was the little co-creation with myself. So I said earlier, physical workout is a cornerstone of my life. So I, I do regular swimming. So I was taking my laps and, and it is a little bit from the English and American saying it takes two to tango. Whenever there's a problem, we say, well, there's always two people who are kind of sharing the responsibility for an issue or a conflict. And I always had this five. I knew the five stakeholders. I had them in mind. And then I was taking my laps and I'm like, it takes five to tango. And here it was. <laughs> but there is a second perspective to this. During the early days of the pandemic, I was listening into one of those wonderful free um, sessions with leaders of the House of Beautiful think tank. And they had invited 
Pablo Pugliese and Noé Stratza, his partner, who are professional tango dancers. And they were giving a leadership seminar online with even a dance performance. And he was explaining why tango is different from any other standard dance. It is, there's no prefixed set of steps for the dancers. The dancers actually create new steps and new formations every single second they are together on stage. The way they do this without stepping on each other's toes is by agreeing on a set of vocabulary on which they will non-verbally communicate and give each other signals. And that allows them to move and create new formations every time. The key principle is there's not one person leading. They can swap leadership from the men to the women. And by the way, if you go to Milonga in Buenos Aires, there can be women dancing with women and men with men. So it's like almost a very egalistic dance. But the point I'm making here is that swap of leadership and a joint vocabulary to co-create new innovation and solutions. And I thought that's exactly what we need for the five Ps that currently work in silos where nobody is the boss. My father-in-law asked me, he's like, well, who's who's actually the conductor for all these five Ps? I'm like, that's exactly our problem. There is not one boss. Some of them pretend they are more powerful than the other, but they are not. If at all, it's the patient, but they have the least bargaining power, so it's not working. And that inspired me for that title, It Takes Five to Tango, from competition to cooperation. Very illustrative, and I think you nicely also summarized uh, the main story flow of the book. Maybe two topics I would like to highlight. One is the joint incentive schemes for all these 5P stakeholders, which I think comes together in value-based um, healthcare, and maybe afterwards getting there and uh, making all these parties to collaborate. The first is coming back to value-based healthcare. Do you think it's working? It's a little bit of buzzword right now. So I think it's more important to talk about what it does, what it means than necessarily the acronym. So what, and linking it to what we said earlier with the silos. So or when I said in different countries, markets, the root causes are almost very similar following my research. And what I found in my research is the fee-for-service system. And that's what you mentioned with the incentive. So the incentive is to do more surgeries, to see more patients, to prescribe more pills. So if that's the incentive, what will happen in human behavior, we do more surgeries, we prescribe more pills, and we see more patients. The word patient is rarely a part of that equation. So what value-based healthcare intends to do is to swap that around and say, we should all focus on what we're trying to do, what problem are we solving, and what outcomes in health for this patient and this patient population are we aiming for. And that naturally galvanizes actually the cooperation among industry payers providers, the different other stakeholders that patients need, be it mental coach, be it social support, be it economic support, be it educational support, to try and achieve that goal of better blood pressure, of better diabetes control, of being able to walk again after hip surgery. So everybody would be incentivized and paid for the hip surgery example if the patient after nine months can walk again. And if they can't walk again, then people get a malo, so they don't get paid. So that's really the essence of value-based healthcare. And why I love it so much is that part, it galvanizes the care coordination. All of a sudden, people are incentivized to talk to each other and work with each other because they both win if the health outcome 
is achieved and is better. And I think I need to answer still a question where I see it working. It was maybe a little bit of provocative question, but sometimes I, I still have the feeling that it's rather the fee-for service approach which is being followed. Maybe you can tell me otherwise that whether it already works uh, from your perspective. So it works. So the quick answer is it does work not only with scholars in theory in the schools, but it does work in practice in health systems and in real countries on the planet. And it has been doing so for the last 15 years. It does so, unfortunately, in pockets. And that was one other motivation for me to write the book, to share examples. And you said it, that it's kind of paved with examples in the book. Let me just say one is Jefferson Health in the US with Steve Klasko, who was, you know, the lead CEO figure since 2013, over 10 years, swapped it. Another example is Oak Street Health in the Midwest. But there are also examples in Europe, the diabetes, which is for type 1 children and, and adolescents living with autoimmune type 1 diabetes, where's a true co-creation of a tech company, payer, health system, patients, families, and they're all incentivized by common joining, achieving common outcomes. If people are interested, it's just more a matter of be curious. There's ample resources. You know, also in my book, there's like 220 references. I think I haven't counted them all, but information is there and then start with a pilot start small see for like watch out for like-minded people in your own environment and try something out so that's basically what we're advertising for and how i spend my day in consulting now maybe one more question on the book that you also discussed digital transformation in healthcare i have the feeling these days is definitely very popular very good topic on linkedin on newspapers still I think in daily practice is not something which is happening very broadly. How do you see the adoption of digital technologies into the healthcare systems? It's absolutely essential. The cynics on value-based healthcare that we spoke about before say, well, you know what? Michael Porter wrote his first seminal paper in 2006. Now we're almost 20 years later. See, it's not working. Because if it were would work, we would all have swapped to the system. And one part of it is you can't do it with pen and paper, fax machines and paper charts. Because along a patient journey, it's zillions and tetra, whatever byte amount of data that are collected on a given patient that you can't process with pen and paper. So, so the electronic data capture and the machine learning and the high throughput processing is key. You mentioned electronic patient dossiers and records are key so that we can actually walk the talk on the care coordination because it's not enough that the social worker wants to talk to the nutritionist and to the internist and to the rehab center. They need a channel to do so. So if they all need to get on the phone and transactionally, sequentially talk to each other, well, a day is gone, nothing has moved, it's practically not working. But to have the one-stop shop instant access to the one platform where that data is available, that is owned by the patient, that is how it's working. We have many countries like Estonia. I just spoke to somebody in Greece yesterday that have that much more advanced than some of the more top-ranking economies, we should say. You mentioned Switzerland and Germany is well behind on electronic patient dossiers, but catching up. So... The only guardrail we need to watch is there needs to be a purpose. And it and the solution, the electronic and software solution, has to be co-created with the end user. And it sounds so trivial. Like students that are studying this at schools right now say, of course you do this with the end user. You do use cases. 
But if we take the first generation electronic medical records, particularly in the U.S., they were actually designed to help better billing. And they're actually a nightmare for the people who need to use it, be it the nurses, be it the doctors. They're not even talking about patients. So they're absolutely not user-friendly, <laughs> but they're mass-produced. So with digital is a buzzword as well. The driver, the step one needs to be, why do I need it for? What do I want to solve? Who do I need to involve to develop the solution? Have your software developer with you and your tech people around the table and do the prototyping, the use case together. Fair points uh, you make. And uh, I think it's going to be also a nice segue to your current venture. You already alluded to that entrepreneurship is definitely not easy. You started, I think, four years back, 5P Healthcare Solutions. I think this is also the theme uh, from the book as well. How do you help your clients? What's your contribution these days to the healthcare systems, maybe to the 5P stakeholder network, uh, Verena? Yeah, it is in typical good consultant method and ways of working is sitting with the client and understand what their day issue is and their challenge and really sit with them in their environment and do the analysis of what is not working and why and what they actually want to do better. And our themes are people that want to move along transformation towards become more value-driven customer-centric, and of course, carve out waste because that's actually why there is a problem because at the end we have a cost problem, but the cost problem can't be solved by cutting cost. You actually need to figure out where do you have inefficiencies and a lot is inefficiencies in that 5P value change. So we look at, basically, we map those processes. So patient journey value chain processes, whoever, this can be a pharmaceutical company, it can be a payer, it can be a hospital. It really doesn't matter where somebody sits in the ecosystem. We do apply always the same process. What does differentiate us very specifically is that we don't only do the analytics and say, okay, here's a pilot project in that population and, you know, we'll, we'll implement whatever solution it is, but we will be there to accompany the implementation. And the reason why we can do that is because we are practitioners. We are not born consultants. We, we come from the hospital setting. We come from pharmaceutical. We have patients working with us. So we really have that inside view that we have enough of the vocabulary and help bridge those gaps in the silos because maybe sometimes a hospital really needs a pair to chime in but they don't have the contacts so sometimes we also bring simply the network and the contacts but we are also have enough vocabulary to be able to ask the right questions and help formulate solutions because we understand enough of the hospital lingo the pharmaceutical company the pair the health authority the patient lingo in terms of language and vocabulary so sometimes i say we're almost like translators. <laughs> That's actually what we do. When I was a little bit preparing for this interview as well, I realized that you have a podcast, Let's Talk Value. Maybe this is another way of connecting. It's another way of giving back uh, besides writing the book. How is this podcasting uh, journey going uh, on? Oh, no, but I'm not sure I can give you any tips the opposite. I'm learning <laughs> what, what you're doing. I don't think that there's a right or wrong way to do podcasts. They're different styles. And I always like it like you do, Norbert, to keep it natural rather than a like a media training formal interview with preset questions and pre-formulated answers. That, that is simply not my style. I'm not saying there's no value, but 
it's not what I would choose to do. I try on my podium reflect the same variety of perspectives and stakeholders from the 5P ecosystem, including investors, including things that we or functions we don't necessarily spontaneously think of financing. You know, there are different aspects out there. Maybe keeping it natural and speak about real life examples and sharing those rather than only theory. That is probably what I constantly and continuously try to challenge myself with. Thank you, Verena. And it's, I always treasure these advice and learnings. And staying on advice, I think now we are getting to a career stage when uh, we are approached by younger colleagues about tough questions like what should be the next position, what they should take, maybe mentoring requests, what we are getting. So... If you needed to give a few advice to the next generation, career-wise, what would be those insights, Verena, what you would share with them? Yeah, that always makes us feel so old, right? When we're being asked those questions. Rather wise than old. And, and I'm like, I don't even know if I'm wise enough to give that advice. I, comes to mind is, I would say, what I've been told when I asked that question, I think it's still valid. It's follow your passion and listen to your inner voice. And the second part, we need to be hardworking. There is nothing that is easy. You know, all of the very successful and famous people that we admire, be it socially, be it professionally, be it in our family and friends' lives, I could venture to say 99% of these people are incredibly hardworking. And in reverse, to just say, I want that position, I want that title, that is great. For me personally, those things have always been a vehicle to live my dream on helping patients get through tough parts of their lives and improve their health and their therapy. So I was driven by that wish to do so. And particular roles and functions for me were a vehicle to have that impact. And it's still today. And so as a scientist, we sometimes say, or even in the pharmaceutical industry, follow the science and the success will follow. So even in product development, if you have a really good medicine and it does exactly that, it provides the right treatment for the right patient at the right time, you will become very rich in terms of dollars. So the professional success and salaries and you know wealth and be able to live a comfortable life, automatic consequences. If you're following an impactful career, changing the needle for people's lives in helping others and helping your teams deliver what they're supposed to deliver, everybody will be very successful. And be resilient. Maybe that's the last point. That goes hand in hand with it doesn't go fast and you need to work hard. It's setbacks. Be prepared for setbacks and start putting things in your armamentarium on how to deal with setbacks in terms of techniques and skills, but also network and mentors and people you can brainstorm with when there are tough times because there are constantly tough times. That is probably the important thing not to give up. Marina, very wise words. Thank you for sharing them today on Care Captains. It was truly a pleasure having you on the show and uh, I wish uh, you good luck with uh, the next podcast and maybe to the continuation of your book. It was really great to chat with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Norbert. All the best. 
Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to Care Captains on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. See you next time.